Welcome to Founders First, a show about mental health and entrepreneurship and how to build resilience to stay stronger, happier, and be more successful. You can engage more in the conversation by going to the App Store on your phone and searching Founders First Community. Our guest today is a psychologist, psychiatrist, former CEO, and the world's predominant researcher studying the mental health of entrepreneurs. For over 20 years, he's helped entrepreneurs understand their vulnerabilities, build on their strengths, and overcome the challenges so many of us experience relating to anxiety, mood, and attention. He serves on the faculty of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California at San Francisco's School of Medicine. And his 2015 report, Our Entrepreneurs Touched with Fire, has been written about by the New York Times, Inc. Magazine, The Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Fortune, and basically everybody else. Today I'm talking with Dr. Michael Freeman. So I'd like to start with a question about your study, Our Entrepreneurs Touched with Fire, as your findings have fascinated me ever since it was published. You found that 72% of entrepreneurs report lifetime mental health issues. Compared to other members of the population, entrepreneurs are twice as likely to struggle with depression and even suicidal thoughts, three times as likely to struggle with substance abuse, six times as likely to have ADHD, and 11 times as likely to be bipolar. In Founders First, we talk a lot about entrepreneurs being in a time of crisis, so I'd like to ask, were you surprised to find how dramatic this data was? And to what extent are your study participants and your clients really struggling? It was an interesting study, and those were um, those were impressive results, and they were surprising, actually. Um, so surprising that we went back and did it did it again. That prop that study was limited by a couple of methodological issues. One is. You don't need to know a lot about statistics, but there was there were characteristics of the sample, both the size and the nature of the sample, that um, made us question the validity of those results. So we went back and we did a second study that was much larger in collaboration with the Gallup organization, which has a huge database of entrepreneurs and managers, and um, with the support of a grant from the Kauffman Foundation. So in the second study. We compared a thousand uh, managers yeah. with a thousand entrepreneurs, and the results were similar to what you just said, but not as extreme. But nonetheless, they they all of the trends were kind of going in the in in that direction, and we could see very very distinct differences between entrepreneurs and managers. And we chose managers because they have a similar level of education and they have similar. They, they at least have a lot of responsibility as mm-hmm. entrepreneurs do as well. So I'm, I, at the end of the day, I'm confident that entrepreneurs are different. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things that you don't need to be a genius to figure that out, but it's nice to confirm what everybody already knows with some data. But if you, mm-hmm. step, if you step back and think about it, pretty much, um, Aaron, any, anybody can the job. There's a lot of people that can lead a Cub Scout pack, baseball team, a um, dinner party, a club, a, a, a work team, a project. So a lot of people can be leaders. Not everybody, but a lot of people can be leaders. But very, very few people can start and grow a business. So there is something different about these people, these entrepreneurs 
being one of them um, myself. I kind of see it in three dimensions. Mm-hmm. And the data is beginning to give us an understanding of what that difference is. And it does associate with these mental health conditions. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So you said it can run a business or can start a business. Take me to that moment of like the decision point of choosing to start a business, right? Because a lot of people that don't ever start companies like to think they would start companies. Is there something about this type of brain? these types of personality patterns that cause entrepreneurs to actually choose to become entrepreneurs? Is there something to that too? It's, it's kind of uh, an interaction between the entrepreneurial mind and the environmental context. So it's as if you were to ask me, how does a seed decide to become a flower? Well, it's a lot easier for a seed to decide to become a flower if there's sunlight mm-hmm. or if there's like in soil or if there's nutrients and water around same for an entrepreneur. If um, there are opportunity, if you see, if there's opportunity, if there's access to capital, mm-hmm. if you have access to talent, um, if you have uh, relationships with uh, collaborating entities that could give you a competitive advantage, then you're more likely to start a business. So it's a it's a person environment interaction, mm-hmm. and you're asking, you know, is it the chicken or is it the egg? Well, mm-hmm. the way the researchers look at it is like, what are the characteristics of the chicken and what are the characteristics of the egg? And when you line it all up and add water, voila! So um, the characteristics of the individual are what well, the scientific community refers to as the propensity for mm-hmm. entrepreneurship. And a lot of people have the propensity for entrepreneurship um, who don't actually start businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and for reasons having to do with environmental constraints. Mm-hmm. But given the propensity for entrepreneurship and given a kind of a a kind of an opportunity-rich environment, the entrepreneurs will start the companies and other people won't. Mm-hmm. The opportunity, the entrepreneurs will see the opportunities and other people won't. Mm-hmm. One of the yeah, things, go, go ahead, sorry. One of the things that I've learned from you in, in a recent discussion was that there's a specific genetic code which shows a predisposition specifically to ADHD. And that same genetic code is present in some of our most creative minds. So the same genes that make us creative and innovative and poised to change the world also may deprive us of the focus that we need to actually do it. Can you tell us how this was discovered and what it means to us as founders, as business owners, as people trying to chase our dreams and build companies? Yes. So we were just talking about the um, propensity for entrepreneurship. And that propensity is related to personality traits. So what is a personality? Well, you know, think of three people you know, and if you were going to describe them to, if you were going to describe them to me, you would have a way of telling me this one is shy and this one is brash and this one is cautious and this one is always got a chip on his shoulder. 
Mm-hmm. And you have ways of like characterizing people. And what you're doing is you're referring to their personality. And it turns out uh, personality is genetically transmitted in part. It's about 50% genetically transmitted. Mm-hmm. And entrepreneurs have a particular pattern of personality traits. An easy one everybody can understand is extroversion. Mm-hmm. Most entrepreneurs are extroverted. Not all. If you're not extroverted, you can still be an entrepreneur. Because the other 50% that's not genetically transmitted is learned. So you can learn some of these things if you don't if you didn't get dealt the right hand of cards. You can pick it up. But uh, but by and large, uh, entrepreneurs are extroverts, and that's genetically transmitted. Mm-hmm. And with respect to ADHD, it turns out that extroversion is associated with some mental health issues. One of them is ADHD. Another is bipolar spectrum. And so if you're extroverted, you're, you have a higher likelihood of also having ADHD. If you're extroverted, you have a higher likelihood of also being in the bipolar spectrum somewhere. Hmm. And entrepreneurs are, that's the package. And extroversion is one. And then there's some other personality traits that are associated with some of those other mental health conditions. So yeah, it is genetically transmitted. Uh, Some of them you can see on brain scans, ADHD, you can see a footprint Hmm. on brain scan. with respect to bipolar, there's like 16 or 18 genes that jointly regulate mood. And the other thing you said is also quite accurate, mm-hmm. that these that um, entrepreneurs are highly creative. The creativity is associated with a different personality trait. That one is called openness to experience. Mm-hmm. And that openness to experience is also highly associated with uh, bipolar and um, and to some extent ADHD. So entrepreneurs are blessed. I consider it an endowment, even if you can't remember where you left your keys. It's still overall, it's better to be creative and <laughs> outgoing because outgoing people like get information because they have more relationships. And so they are it, they're more able to develop social capital, which is a big uh, advantage for entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And they're more able with the creativity to innovate and improvise, which that's a big advantage for entrepreneurs. Yeah. So you mentioned you you use the word mental health conditions. People sometimes use the words mental illness. What what are these things? In, in the title for our session today, we talked about these things as mental health differences. Are they really like mental pattern differences? And is yeah. there is there a good and bad set? that we all wish we could have, or we should be trying to put the context around us to learn the correct set to be great entrepreneurs? Yeah. Let's unpack that one a little bit. So I like to talk about mental health differences. By analogy, think about learning differences. Mm -hmm. A lot of entrepreneurs, when you were a kid, somebody told you you had a learning disability. Well, you didn't have a learning disability. You had a learning difference 
and the school had a teaching disability. The school didn't know how to teach you because you learn in a different way. Um, the people who you hire in your company are pretty good at learning from books and and memorizing and um, developing you know skills uh, through homework assignments. Entrepreneurs and the kids with the learning differences are often more activity-based learners or auditory learners. So I don't consider it a disability. It's a difference. Um, it, uh, it is associated with some limitations. It's associated with some strengths as well. Same with mental health. Um, these things are differences. They're differences in perception, differences in information processing, differences in risk tolerance, differences in problem solving, thought patterns, differences in um, opportunity uh, seeking differences related to socialization. Mm -hmm. And they are associated with strengths and they're associated with some limitations. But uh, overall, it can be an endowment or it can be a disability. And the trick for you as an entrepreneur is to learn how to manage it properly so that you're mostly playing your strong cards, that you're mostly building on your strengths and that you have some risk management strategies to prevent yourself from wiping out. Yeah, when you said um, the school had a teaching problem, I got goosebumps. And my, my experience with it was slightly different, but a very, a very similar kind of going up against the system, which was in school, I was good at the academics, but really bad at following rules. When I first started in, in public school, I was homeschooled up until the end of second grade, and I started in public school, and I found my way to getting kicked out of school three times in my first year of public school because I didn't like the rules and didn't operate well within that framework. And my own entrepreneurial friends and, and people I've studied or work I'm doing with Founders First System, uh, many of these entrepreneurs have had serious run-ins with the law post-school as well. There's some convicted felons for things people did in their 20s that run great companies. It's really interesting to see folks that um, you know that didn't quite fit into the system in the beginning, and maybe it took a little longer for them to learn how to play the rules or work work around or work with the system. In, um, yeah, well, that's really interesting. Um, and uh, you'll also be kind of amused to find out that rule breaking is a genetically transmitted trait as well. Mm. And that entrepreneurs have big problem with rule conformance, rule adherence, and that there is a, a measurable elevation of interaction with the um, criminal justice system hmm. among people who later become entrepreneurs. And um, that's that's a big issue. That's a big subject mm -hmm. um, because. Uh, entrepreneurs, in, you know, in business, people, there's a lot of opportunities to cheat. There's a lot of, there are a lot of opportunities to break the rules mm -hmm. in business. And it's, it's actually, you know, we just found out that um, the president of the United States, um, you know, is doing many, many things that are probably eventually going to turn out to be like highly illegal. Um, but it, at a minimum, breaking the rules or bending the rules. 
Mm-hmm. And um, but you don't need to look at that example. I think everybody who's listening to this conversation has been burned a couple times by unethical actors in the business space. So what's true is that you got to take risk and you've got to try new things mm-hmm. as an entrepreneur. And so this, this kind of uncomfortable relationship with rules enables entrepreneurs to do things that other people won't do and that can lead to great business outcomes. But it can also lead to some pretty bad um, outcomes as well. And it's a subject that hasn't gotten enough attention that uh, is really worth reflecting upon, I think, individually, because, you know, most you'll, you'll see that in yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one it's just one that I've, I've seen the pattern so much. And uh, I guess I'm glad that, that most of my <laughs> trying to fight the system ended around <laughs> the third, fourth, and fifth grade, because, yeah, it can play out in so many different ways. Um, in your 30 years as a psychologist, you mentioned to me that you found that almost all or many, at least, of your clients were hypomanic, or you thought they were. In our peak ability program, we talk about resisting the need to chase excitement. Some might do it to create intensity as a counterbalance to work-related stress, some as an escape, and some to self-medicate against doubts about our companies or ourselves when things get difficult. So can you tell us a little bit about what you've learned about entrepreneurs and hypomania? Is it just part of who we are or is it affected by context, as you mentioned earlier? Is it driving us to succeed, putting us off the rails or a little bit of both? Yeah, so to start with, that's a really good question. And that is what got me in. That's one of the things that got me interested in entrepreneurship and bipolar disorder um, in the first place. Um, But for context, most entrepreneurs are not hypomanic. Um, and most entrepreneurs do not have ADHD. And it's a little bit difficult to distinguish between ADHD and hypomania sometimes because people with ADHD are hyperactive. Mm-hmm. And uh, people who are hypomanic are, can also be very, very active. So there's a little bit of nuance in sorting that out. But I think the, um, the way that you asked your question, I think the best answer is that whether you are hypomanic or if you have ADHD, there is a drive, there's a drive to have more stimulation. People... A lot of entrepreneurs are stimulus seekers. They get bored very easily. Boredom is like the enemy of life. And um, if you weren't an entrepreneur, you might be a firefighter or a first responder, or you might, uh, well, you might be one of those guys you see riding mountain bikes on the side of mountains way faster than they should be going or um, something else to keep stimulated. But the, the reality is that your, your mind is a little bit um, calibrated differently when it comes to dopamine. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that is 
uh, involved in the reward system. That everything that's rewarding in life is associated with dopamine. And uh, entrepreneurs kind of need to find ways to get more of it just in order to feel like they're in their happy place. But the caveat is what you just said, that um, I just had this conversation earlier today um, with an entrepreneur who was making some possibly unwise business decisions because they were very high risk. This is a guy I told him he was playing high stakes poker mm-hmm. and uh, his wife was in the room and his wife said, well, he's not happy unless he's playing high stakes poker or doing something that's really, really intense. And so I asked him, well, um, do you ever do things like ski double black diamonds or drive a race car? And he said, well, I fly an airplane and I like to surf. And so I asked, well, when you're flying your airplane and when you're surfing, you feel like you're in that same mental groove that you feel like when you're doing big business deals. And the answer was yes. Mm-hmm. So my response was that you're self-medicating with risk, that your mind is looking for sort of dopamine optimization. and I. In in this case, I like rather have you like self medicate with medication instead of self medicating with risk, where you could blow up the family fortune. Mm-hmm. And so that was a long winded answer, but you're 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 voicing some concern and you're you're suggesting some caution around thrill seeking, and I would definitely agree with you about that. So how do you do that? Get a second opinion sleep on it for a night, you know, find ways of um, not grabbing every brass ring that comes by so that you can make sure that you're exercising good judgment. I've heard some, and a lot of entrepreneurs, and I identify with the, the crazy mountain biking along the edge of a cliff <laughs> activity myself um, and skiing some rather sketchy things sometimes. And I hear a lot of entrepreneurs talk about activities like this that come with just enough amount of risk, right? So there's, there is risk in it, and that risk you know, is, is actually important to them. It's just complicated enough that they have to pay attention to it. Almost, a lot of those activities almost used in, I don't know, maybe they're thinking it's therapeutic or, or a relaxing way. They say, the only way to get my mind to calm down is to go surfing where there might be a shark chasing me and I have to keep my head up or to mountain bike next to something where there's real risk and I have to focus on what's in front of me in the moment. That way I don't obsess about all these things in my business and and it's the only way I can slow my mind down. And they're kind of saying that they're relaxing. I know they're not because these activities all kind of involve physical movement that we're talking about. Um, But, you know, you said self-medicating. There is something to how we as entrepreneurs feel in that moment. Is it is it a, a false idol? Like we think we're being calm. We think we're being relaxed. We think we're being focused. Oh, no. I, um, what you're doing is it's not really relaxing. In fact, what, what is most entrepreneurs don't relax. Relaxation is way too boring. You know, like sit on a beach chair on the beach and drink a pina colada and read a book. It's just not going to happen. So. 
um, what you're really doing is you're centering. And you, what you experience in your mind is that your mind is scattered and that you are um, you're feeling pressured and you're feeling a sense of urgency and you're um, a little bit restless. And what, when you're riding your mountain bike on the edge of the cliff and you are in a kind of a do or die situation, that causes you to have a dopamine surge that allows you to feel centered. And when you get centered, when the entrepreneurs are centered, they enter a flow state. And that flow state is a very positive, productive place to be. But you also have to remember that most entrepreneurs fail most of the time. Mm -hmm. And that the most, the, the most likely um, outcome of any startup is failure. I mean, as you know, as you know, Aaron, I'm like starting venture myself right now, which I've done from time to time over the course of my life. And I go into it knowing full well, the most likely outcome is failure. Um, at my age, it's, I have a little bit of a different perspective on that than I might have at age 31. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, um, it's easy to make mistakes. You know, you, you can hit a branch that you didn't see on the trail. Mm -hmm. and flip over and you ER is full of people like riders that had never had an accident until now. <laughs> <laughs> the ER is full of entrepreneurs is what we're saying here. <laughs> thrill seekers. Thrill seekers. Yeah. There's a lot of ways to still thr seek thrills and entrepreneurship is one of them. Yep. Many of us who've been entrepreneurs for quite some time know that substance abuse and entrepreneurship also unfortunately go hand in hand. Whether we've seen it in ourselves or our colleagues, we've got these predispositions. And then as founders, we put ourselves in some of the most stressful and volatile professional situations imaginable. Your report is clear on the issue of entrepreneurs and substance abuse. Do you see substance abuse among entrepreneurs as a trend which fluctuates over time? Or is this just always something we have to keep an eye on in ourselves and in our colleagues? That is a nuanced question as well. And let's differentiate between substance use and substance abuse. Okay. Um, if you drink champagne at a wedding, you're not having a problem with champagne. You're having a problem that you're at a wedding in the middle of a pandemic. But um, there, you, there's like a time and a place for everything. Mm -hmm. Entrepreneurs are, in general, we found a little bit more vulnerable to impulsive, compulsive, and addictive behavior. Mm -hmm. It can be drugs and alcohol. It can be gambling. It can be um, serial entrepreneurship. There's a couple of researchers out there who believe that entrepreneuring itself can be an addiction. And it can be workaholism. So there's a lot of ways to be impulsive, compulsive, and addictive. Um, it could be with food, it could be with sugar. Um, as I was saying about extroversion, entrepreneurship is a really social activity. Mm -hmm. And a lot of socialize, the alcohol is involved with a lot of socializing. Mm -hmm. And um, the, in this study we did uh, that I 
with the Gallup organization, we found that alcohol is associated with some better business outcomes and some worse business outcomes. Um, the better business outcomes, if you're at a networking event and you're having a couple drinks and you're feeling loose and you're talking to more people, you increase the amount of relevant information and relevant relationships that uh, come into your field of vision. So it's it's something, I, I would say it's something to be um, careful about. The other thing is stress management. That there have been some studies on the relationship between drugs and alcohol and stress. And what they found is if you are married to an entrepreneur, or if you're an entrepreneur, you have a higher likelihood of using medications that are typically used for either managing sleep or managing stress. Mm-hmm. So prescription medication gets onto that list as well. Mm-hmm. Um, be careful about um, the uppers and the downers, you know, for example. Mm-hmm. So medication to manage sleep, that seems pretty clear. And I hear the sleep issue, can't sleep, wake up in the middle of the night, wide awake, can't go back to sleep. That's a very common issue. Walk me through the other side of it. Medications to manage stress. What what are those? What are people? Oh, like anxiety meds. Okay. You know, people like take clonopin or a Valium or, you know, those kinds of things just to chill. Chill pills, they used to yep. call them. Yeah. Um, and people and then edibles, you know, the whole pot thing. You guys, you're in Colorado. Isn't Colorado where you're going to uh, legalize psilocybin as well? Did I hear that? Yeah, the Denver Metro. I think it was a little over a year ago now. Denver Metro okay. decriminalized psilocybin use or possession. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, um, you know, entrepreneurs are often very very aware of their state of mind and there's some states of mind that they don't like boredom is an example restlessness is an example agitation and irritability mm-hmm. is an example and um, this kind of attitude that you can make things change things um, that as, as an entrepreneur always like building testing you know changing pivoting Mm-hmm. So, um, so, you know, Silicon Valley out here where I live, you know, a lot of people are like microdosing LSD. I, mm-hmm. I have no idea, you know, whether what to say about that, but people do it. Mm-hmm. People do. What I would say for everybody who listens to this is that these drugs are serious. They can, they addiction is a re addiction is a disease. Mm-hmm. Um, entrepreneurs can very easily become addicted to behavioral addictions like, uh, gambling or compulsive shopping or, um, substance addictions like alcohol, cigarettes, or prescription uh, medications, mm-hmm. and you kind of have to know that you're vulnerable to that and exercise some restraint around that mm-hmm. so that you don't go over the edge. And I, I put workaholism up there on the behavioral addiction category, and I know, Aaron, in your program, a lot of what you do is help, you, you have come up with some very, I think, um, 
sort of impressive strategies to help people break away from being workaholics. And that's, that's, that's a good thing, I think. Thank you. I want to switch over to, to neurobiology. Now, we've all had assumptions about predispositions, either that of our own or that of our entrepreneurial friends and colleagues. So it's very interesting to hear about it from someone who actually found the data. You have a deep understanding of how neurobiology allows us to study our nervous systems, to understand how we might respond to different situations. So for our audience here, what have you learned about how we can best manage ourselves given the way our brains just are wired and the demanding circumstances and the stress that we put ourselves through? Um, well, my, my first thought when you ask that question is to not think about the neurobiology so much as the results of the neurobiology. And one result for a lot of entrepreneurs is low self-esteem. Believe it or not, everybody thinks entrepreneurs are like the coolest people in the world. But by the time you get to be an entrepreneur, you've been pretty beaten up along. I mean, I, I, thank you for sharing your story, Aaron. I didn't know about the homeschooling. But it sounds like the message was you don't fit in. And if you're a kid who grows up with grown-ups telling you that you don't fit in, it can have an effect on your self-esteem. So to peel back that onion, I would think about um, don't label yourself, don't stigmatize yourself, and don't buy the narrative that you got growing up about um, related to negative messages, all kinds of mm -hmm. negative messages. That, that would be that would be real important. It's not that you don't fit in. It's that you're different and that, um, that, like I said, in your case, the schools really did have teaching disabilities. They could not figure out how to teach you. Mm -hmm. Not that you're not smart. In fact, we didn't mention that one, but um, entrepreneurs have above average intelligence. They don't get good grades on on tests, they don't score necessarily all that high on IQ tests, but they nonetheless are have there are different kinds of intelligence, and the entrepreneurs have high intellect, and that's why the B students are the ones that end up hiring the A students to work in their companies. Um, and so, self-esteem good place to start. And with respect to the others, if you do have a true psychiatric condition. That would be about 38%. I think that's a conservative, realistic number. In that touched with fire study, the number was like 49%. Mm -hmm. um, some of the studies it comes down more towards the 38% range, 39%. Unless that's a very big number. Um, and if you're one of those people, I would say find a um, mental health professional who can let you know what the diagnosis is and what the treatment plan is. And if it's a, a lot of extroverted people don't have ADHD. A lot of extroverted people are not bipolar. But if you're one of those extroverted people who also does have ADHD, it's, um, it's treatable. Outcomes are pretty good. 
And there are a lot of things you can do to prevent negative ADHD symptoms like distractibility and disorganization and procrastination. Those things are not great if you're an entrepreneur. So there are a lot of things you can do to reduce the severity of those symptoms without dampening the creativity and the energy and the activity level and the motivation that are positive benefits for you as an entrepreneur. Sleep, um, mention that one again. Um, sleep and wellness behavior broadly construed, which is diet, exercise, sunlight, social support. Um, those all go a long way to counterbalancing some of the directions where you can spin out if you're an entrepreneur. Like, for example, with sleep. A lot of entrepreneurs are wired in a way where their circadian rhythms are just not particularly um, engaged. So, um, you know, most people are aware of morning, noon, and night. And tea time is tea time. And you take a siesta when it's siesta time. For the entrepreneurs, they're more aware of now and not now. And so the idea that you actually, you're anchored in time doesn't necessarily come so easily for a lot of people. So anything you can do to build time anchors into your day so you don't get so disconnected from your circadian rhythms, that kind of is a way of working with your neurobiology rather than working against it. That's incredible. I know so many entrepreneurs listening here are going to get a ton from that because this, this is such a common issue. Um, Dr. Freeman, it, it seems entrepreneurs, we were just talking about this, I think, last week. Uh, it seems entrepreneurs might be healthier if we acted more like scientists. It's kind of a fun thing to think about. Scientists come up with a hypothesis, then dispassionately do everything they can to disprove it. Most entrepreneurs instead come up with a hypothesis, then passionately defend it with all of their energy until they're eventually beaten down to almost nothing and forced to move on. I can definitely relate with that, relate to that. But the best entrepreneurs retain their emotional energy, changing hypotheses until they find the right one. As entrepreneurs, if we keep ourselves healthy and energized enough so that we can run our experiments over and over again, uh, we can stay in the game long enough to win. So from all that you've learned, your studies, your client work, what advice would you give to founders who have these passions, who have these predispositions we've talked about today as to how they can manage themselves through the ups and downs and see success both in business and also just as people? The um, easy advice is don't believe everything you think. The scientific method is designed to correct inaccurate thought distortions and, and biases that pretty much everybody has. And entrepreneurs have their are kind of hardwired with their own set of cognitive distortions and biases. And one of them is called um, reward sensitivity. Reward sensitivity means that if you flip a coin and it comes up Let's, let's say I ask you to bet heads or tails, and you bet heads and it comes up heads, and you get the reward, you get to keep the coin. Because of your 
cognitive biases, you're going to be, you're going to believe that the next time you flip the coin, it's also more likely to come up heads. You, you know, intellectually, the odds are 50, 50, you can't really predict, but once you get rewarded, then you believe that the results are better than they actually are. You read too much into the rewards. And that is, um, and when you read too much into the rewards, um, then you act accordingly. You, you exert more energy to pursue what you think is going to be rewarding. And then you're off to the races rather than wondering whether or not that was that good result was random. Yeah. So don't believe everything you think. Um, follow the scientific method. Be clear about your hypothesis. Test it, and move on to the next one. If it, if it, and then pivot. Um, in real estate, real estate developers say, "Don't fall in love with the bricks. Don't fall in love with the business model. Don't fall in love with the narrative. Uh, it's just a hypothesis." Mm-hmm. That one hurts, and it's so true for me. I've built 11 companies over my career as an entrepreneur over 20 years, and I have now had, just in the last few years, equaled the number of failures I've had after my large success and exit than the failures I had before that large success and exit. And um, it's easy to think that we've got it figured out or that the idea that we had today is the next one, especially if the last one was. really, really Yeah, so another piece of advice is take some money off the table. Um, it's probabilistic. And as I said before, the most likely outcome is failure. Mm. So, you know, what happens, the venture capitalists mitigate their risk by investing in a portfolio because they only expect one third of their companies to succeed. Mm-hmm. And then ask the venture capitalists what they do with their own money. They put it in like a Vanguard fund. <laughs> you know, they, they take it off the table. <laughs> or they they in, they invested in other ways, but they they mitigate their risk. Dr. Freeman, thank you so much for your incredible insights and for sharing your work with us. We're going to turn to our audience members for some questions that they'd like to ask. So uh, the first one's from Willie, and Willie asked, "Can I work on my shadow values to align myself with my business?" I'm assuming shadow values means these these beliefs in the back of our mind that we've developed or, or thought were true, um, maybe from our childhood. I don't know. Um, I mean, it's okay with me, Willie, if you want to jump in and just explain what you mean by that. I can, I could see that going in a lot of different directions. Like, for example, one of those personality traits is dom- need for dominance. Mm-hmm. Entrepreneurs tend to be dominant people. That's why they're leaders. But that can, there's a shadow side of dominance, which is <clears throat> control, manipulation subordination of other people if you happen to be married that's not a great idea or if you want to have friends that's not a great idea so i i mean there there is a shadow side there's a dark side to a lot of these traits i think it's important really important to have self-awareness about that rule breaking Mm -hmm. is another one just be aware that entrepreneurs don't have a brake pedal on their car. 
and you're going to have to kind of jerry-rig something to make sure that you don't create bad consequences for yourself because it seems okay to you if you just happen to walk off the back of the bus without paying, you know, whatever it is. Our next question, uh, Terry, Dr. Finney, um, who works with the state of Colorado and Energized Colorado is one of her many projects. Great to see you here. Uh, Dr. Finney asks, now I'm feeling better. <laughs> now I'm feeling better about my high school probation officer. Yeah, you and me both. Mr. Hinky, who was the, <laughs> the office I spent a lot of time in. I wonder if he's still alive. Um, so she said, curious about how many of your entrepreneurs end up on medication to help manage the downside of their psychological gifts. So I have my psychiatric practice, which is about two days a week. Um, maybe, yeah, two, two and a half at this point. It used to be more, but it's been all entrepreneurs all the time for, you know, 15 years. 15, I mean, a long time, 20 years maybe. So um, most people who see a psychiatrist benefit from medication. So my, my, uh, my practice, I'd say more than two-thirds would uh, take medication. But that's a self-selected group. Um, the other question you could ask is what percentage of entrepreneurs would benefit from medication? And, you know, that asking the question that way hasn't really been studied, but if I were to, if I were to take a guess, I would say it might be 25%, 30%. And not everybody, um, not all these medications are things that you take forever. So there may be periods, like for example, let's say you're going through a bankruptcy. And I mean, I've worked with a number of entrepreneurs who don't need medications, but then something happens and they begin to have panic attacks. Mm -hmm. And um, medications are helpful for a while until life settles down again. So there's kind of an art to medication management with entrepreneurs. But 20, 25% maybe would be a starting point to think about that. Dan asked a great question, which I think what you've just said is maybe a great segue right into this, which is you've worked with so many entrepreneurs over many years for those whose trajectory you've had insight into over long periods of time. To what extent do they continually struggle versus right size and manage themselves on an easier path? Um, it's a little of both. It's a little of both. I think as um, people get older, some of these, uh, some of the intensity of some of these mental health issues tends to attenuate a little bit. And as people learn from life experience and develop wisdom, they uh, begin to make different decisions because they can anticipate consequences better. But um, on the other hand, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. And uh, I, I mean, I'm, I have joked around with some of my buddies about 
starting a support group for entrepreneurs in their 60s. I, you know, I'm starting a venture right now, and I have a couple of friends uh, who are, you know, 60 to 70 who are starting ventures. So, you know, that it, it doesn't it doesn't go away. It's mm-hmm. it's pretty baked into the cake. But you you you, man, you develop wisdom, and the intensity kind of attenuates, and you. Um, learn how to balance a little better, I think, too. Mm-hmm. Next question is from Amanda. Interesting perspective on entrepreneurial traits and mental health. What differences do you see between male and female entrepreneurs in terms of these traits? Um, women are a little bit more heavily loaded for anxiety. Men, a little bit more on the reckless rule-breaking side mm-hmm. um i hate to generalize because of you know um stereotypes there ha- but on the other hand there has been a lot of research done on this so I th- there's there's no hard and fast rule mm-hmm. let's put it that way there are a lot of men who are entrepreneurs that are more heavily loaded for anxiety and there are a lot of women entrepreneurs that I work with so typical um, distribution is about uh, two-thirds of entrepreneurs are men and about one-third are women but in my uh, caseload my practice about half are women and half are men so I work with a lot of women entrepreneurs and so I've definitely seen all of those all of those patterns I think some of the studies point to male entrepreneurs taking more risk maybe than the women entrepreneurs that would go with the anxiety. Um, so, so those are, those are some of the differences. I think that some of the um, sociological issues also affect men and women differently. I mean, it's, I can say that this one woman who I've been working with for uh, quite a while is doing a great, amazing job as an entrepreneur. She's about to have a great exit. And she is raising uh, three children and they have a couple dogs. And she's mad at her husband for not doing the homework with the kids. So now she has to stay home and do the homework with the kids before going to her office at 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that doesn't change. That Those issues are, are, are quite real. All right, last question just came in from Stephanie. I think this is this is a great question. I, we've got a couple in here, so I hesitated to pick this one, but I'm, I'm actually so interested in this one because I hear it come up often, um, and I actually don't have any personal experience with it, and so I'm just curious your opinion on, on... So the question is, have you looked at or considered plant medicines, which my understanding of it is, is psychedelics, um, I think would be the category of what's being referred to here, for treatment for any of the two-thirds of your clients versus traditional pharmaceuticals? I have looked at plant medicine, but not in the way that you're asking the question. I'm a physician from UCSF, and I'm my overall obligation is to do no harm. Mm-hmm. And I am very cautious about mind-altering drugs. You know, the brain is really, there are more synapses in the brain than there are stars in the Milky Way. It's, we don't know what we're playing with. Uh, it's very, very sensitive. And I, 
for me, the main thing is just don't cause any damage. Mm -hmm. Michael Pollan, notwithstanding. Having said that, nature is therapeutic for many, many entrepreneurs. And I always recommend that people have plants in their workspaces, get into outdoor natural environments as much as you can. This there's a lot of data about. Look out the window, get your station yourself next to a window where you can see green. Um, and if you can see green and blue, meaning if you can see uh, plants and water, and if you can see wildlife like birds or other animals, that's even better. So that's my version of plant medicine. But the rest of it, I think it's recreational and do it at your own risk. And you're just, there's no outcome studies. They're beginning to do research on psilocybin right now in Silicon Valley. And there's research is beginning to happen on marijuana. So we'll know more over time. But as for myself, do I do anything with that? No, not really. That's incredible to hear your perspective on that. And, and the, the outdoor perspective, I can agree to that being here in Colorado. I think the other Coloradans here, probably even a lot of Californians that spend a lot of time outdoors will, will understand that as well. I, I read a book called The Nature Fix. I think the author's name was Florence Williams a couple of years ago, and it was mm -hmm. tracking all of the scientific studies around time in nature and what about it actually worked. And it was you know, actually seeing plants, seeing green material, um, the smell of conifer trees, the, the sound of birds were scientifically proven in there in the research she was following to do things like reduce cortisol, reduce blood pressure, um, reduce other stress response uh, signals in the body. So I, I have experienced that part of it myself and, and completely agree with you. I highly recommend that to everybody. Yeah. Dr. Freeman, thank you once again for your time, your amazing work, and for all you've done for entrepreneurs. We are so grateful for your time. Hey, my pleasure. And thank you for trying to move the needle on the well-being and mental health of entrepreneurs. That's very aligned with that mission. And I appreciate that you're creating a, a, a vehicle that can be so helpful for people. Thank you. It's my life passion and I'm so excited about what we're building here at Founders First. So everyone, remember Dr. Freeman's study, Our Entrepreneurs Touched With Fire, is publicly available. And his company, Econa, is doing amazing work for Founders can be found at econa.net. That's E-C-O-N-A.net. Please take a look at their upcoming events. Thank you so much, everyone. And see you next time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us at Founders First. This conversation continues in the Founders First community. Search Founders First community in the App Store on your phone to learn how to prioritize your health and wellness to become more successful get your questions answered by top entrepreneurs, and receive notifications about upcoming shows. Until next time, stay healthy, be at your best, go change the world. Okay.